first, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else, plus newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch With Jen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code GEN30. And starting right now in the streaming service, you can read and watch my in-app film recommendations. It's a diverse and exciting lineup of six titles from around the world that I can't wait for you to discover. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Returning to the podcast today, we have the witty and wonderful LA-based writer-director Jessica Ellis, a graduate of UCLA and the American Film Institute, who last year made her feature filmmaking debut with the acclaimed coming-of-age movie, What Lies West. Jessica is one of the brightest lights on Twitter and never fails to make me smile. Jessica, thank you so much for coming back to talk movies with me. How are you doing and how's spring going for you so far? Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back. This was, I I came and did your podcast in the midst of like all the publicity when the movie came out and it was a blur, but like, this was just one of the nicest podcasts I was on and we had such a great conversation, but I'm doing good. Spring is doing good. I'm about to bail on Los Angeles for a month and I can't wait. Nice. Where are you going? Um, I, I'm going up to, um, like the central coast around Monterey for, uh, for a month. And I I have not left my house since the beginning of the pandemic, essentially. So I'm so looking forward to this. You are so overdue. The best thing about being a writer is you can write anywhere. So that's kind of perfect. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lots of Steinbecky seaside walks and, and contemplating new, new stuff to write for me. Oh, so cool. Well, congratulations again on the success of what lies West. I know I talked to you last year. It was shortly before the movie was released and I was really excited to see the reaction, all the good buzz and reviews. Do you have plans for a follow-up or what else have you been working on lately? Um, I, oh, there's always plans for a follow-up. Uh, yeah, a lot of stuff that's in early stages right now, both with my writing partner and, and solo, uh, projects that, that I hope will be my, my second feature. But right now it's, I'm trying to find the right team, find the right producer. My first feature was, you know, crowdfunded and I don't want to do that again, but, (laughs) but because it was crowdfunded, I don't know how to do traditional financing. So I'm, I'm on the hunt for a producing partner that has much more experience in that area than me. And that's kind of where I am right now. What we're saying is if you're listening to this, yes. call Jessica, get in the Jessica Ellis business. It's a Please. good business to be in. Yes. DM me. My DMs are open. Oh, they are? <laughs> wow. Uh, you are brave. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, I know you're a script coverage reader as well, and you're always giving really good advice on Twitter for aspiring screenwriters or even screenwriters who've been doing it for a while on what you see again and again in scripts or what people should maybe think about when they're writing their drafts. Are there any pieces of advice that you'd like to offer anyone listening who want to make sure their scripts stand out? Yeah, I, I hesitate to call it advice because, you know, I don't know necessarily what I'm talking about. I, I just, I read a lot of scripts, both at, at kind of the amateur level and studio scripts about to go into production. So I, I see the gamut of, of everything. The, the one I've been noticing a lot, the thing I've been noticing a lot is how important setting is to really good scripts. Like so many scripts are set in generic small town or generic city. And you know, newer writers, I, I think that's a fine thing to do in your first or second draft when you're figuring out characters and plot, but like that's such an important extra area you can exploit to make your script feel really unique and make it feel, make your voice come through more, you know, using your setting as a way to comment on the events or provide obstacles. Um, that's a huge difference I'm noticing in like, you know, scripts that Lionsgate is shooting in two weeks from now and scripts that somebody's on their, their second draft, you know, and, and working on. Uh, so that's, that's my current spiel is work on your settings. Work on settings. I love that, especially because we're going to be talking about fantasy rom-coms today. So that's really fitting. Another thing I remember reading on Twitter is you were talking about uh, ask yourself why the main character falls in love with the secondary character. <laughs> if it's just because I need them to in order to have something happen, that's not a good reason. Is yeah. That, yeah. And and vice versa too. Like your your lead can't just be a romantic interest because they're the lead. Like <laughs> so many people miss writing the moment where these two people really fall for each other, where you really see like, oh, that's the hole that this person is filling for it, them. Like that's the thing they've been looking for. And suddenly they see in this person and just like shorthand past that and skip right to like, Oh, now we're dating. And it's like, <laughs> give me that. I need that moment or I don't buy the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. You need those gaps. As they said in Rocky, the famous phrase, like he has gaps. I have gaps together. We fill gaps. Exactly. Um, yeah. You need those. Exactly. Well, in season two, we had a ball taking a look at movies that fit the summer adventures theme of what lies West. And I think you did really come up with another breezy, creative, lighthearted winner this time around with our chosen focus of fantasy rom-coms in the form of the princess. Bride, Joe versus the Volcano, and Palm Springs. We'll go deeper into the movies one by one in a moment, but before we do that, I would love to know what it is about the romantic comedy and or the fantasy genre that you find particularly compelling, and have you always been a fan of these genres? I've always been a tremendous fan of these genres, um, and I, I think I find them so compelling because they often crash and burn in marketing. That's um, true. They tend to not do well, and and I I think that's because then they end up being everybody's favorite movie a couple of years down the line. You know, like The Princess Bride. We're going to get into, but like, yeah, is a perfect example of like how do you market a fantasy comedy romance? as anything like and, and yes. come across with a cohesive message message. And so I think they are a, a truly beloved little genre of cinema that nobody's figured out how to sell very well. 
No, that's such a good point because the first two that we're talking about are like legitimate cult classics. And the third one is probably well on its way to becoming a cult classic that we talk about like the next game night, essentially in a few years, I can see it being that. And so, yeah, these are movies that they are really hard to market. They're not sure if they should lean into the romance element or if they should go with the fantasy. So it is really tricky. Yeah. And and they don't get made a lot. I think with these three in particular, you see an evolution of the budgets people are willing to spend (laughs) on this kind of movie from, you know, Princess Bride to and Joe versus Volcano to Palm Springs. Yes. Uh, You you have to get cheaper and cheaper if you want to do it at all. That's true. Well, going chronologically, we're kicking things off with one of my generation's most beloved childhood classics, a film that although modestly successful in theaters, became a huge hit on VHS. We're talking about director Rob Reiner's 1987 adaptation of the 1973 novel by William Goldman, The Princess Bride, starring Robin Wright, Carrie Ellis, Mandy Patinkin, Chris Sarandon, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, Christopher Guest, Fred Savage, Peter Falk, and more. The film uses a framing or a metafictional device of a grandfather reading a story to his grandson, which chronicles the story of the beautiful Princess Buttercup, Robin Wright, and the stable boy that she loves, Wesley, played by Carrie Ellis. Spirited, fantastical, and very, very funny. It is a contemporary classic for a reason. And I would love to know your thoughts and memories of growing up with The Princess Bride. Oh, I mean, I loved it. I probably saw it, you know, I'm sure my dad rented it immediately when it came out because it's very much his kind of movie. And and so it became very much kind of mine. Um, And then I I immediately went and read the book. Uh, So probably I was 10 or 11 uh, around then. And, you know, it's one of, I think, one of the best book adaptations of all time. It has its own vibe and is its own story. Um, but like, it's one of those ones where I can read the movie, the book and be happy. I can watch the movie and be happy. I don't get mad (laughs) at either side of it. Yeah. Um, so, but it was, I, I was a huge fantasy reader growing up. That was kind of my genre and, you know, we don't want to categorize romance as girly, but this was definitely one that played more to female audiences more than a lot of seventies and eighties fantasy books did. There were always a boy who was chosen to do something and yeah. Buttercup was such an an interesting character in this one, and and um, yeah, I, I just I, I mean, who doesn't fall in love with this movie when they they see it? It's it, there's there's something wrong with people. I have to say that I don't like that this don't movie. like the movie. No, I agree with you. I actually had never read the book, so I'm curious to know about any of the differences when we get into talking about it. But I remember seeing this. I think my first memory of it is watching it like at a birthday party of a friend like a sleepover I remember watching you know going to McDonald's or whatever we did in the 80s and then going to my friend's house and watching like full house and then immediately putting on uh the princess bride and just finding it so so funny my mom actually worked in schools well she was she worked in several jobs but she worked in uh the library growing up and so she would work with videos and put things on for people. But then when she worked in my local schools, she 
worked with the special um, education or the behavioral uh, children. And this was their favorite movie. It calmed them right down. They loved The Princess Bride. And it was kind of like a magical film that just made everybody feel better. And so she would put that on all the time. And so it really reminds me of you know, it takes me right back to being a kid again in the late eighties and just falling in love with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's sort of the, the platonic ideal of everything a real Hollywood movie is supposed to be like, you know, the the pitch, the grandfather makes at the beginning of it of, you know, it's got fencing and fighting adventure, true love, you know, all of this, like, what more do we think we want in a movie? Like that, that's, that's the ideal. Uh, which also makes it ironic that then it, it, it absolutely blew it at the box office. Yes, it really does. And I think it's really funny too, to see like what came after it, even just little jokes that are worked into the script. Like when you watch uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral and you have the priest who's mispronouncing things, it kind of yeah. reminds you of at the end, you know, the marriage guy that can barely, uh, you know, do the marriage ceremony. And it's so funny. So when I was watching it this time, I was thinking about some of the movies that maybe were inspired by it. Of course, it's beautiful looking. My goodness. I mean, Robin Wright is the most gorgeous creature than Carrie Ellis. I mean, just at the peak of their beauty in this film. But it's just stunning to look at. I love Mandy Patinkin. To me, he steals the entire movie. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. Wallace Shawn is great. Uh, I remember getting a kick out of, you know, the inconceivable and all of the, the jokes um, and the the mental chess that was going on and how it was playing on several different avenues of intellect, basically, like you have, uh, you know, them trying to outsmart the Wesley character. And then you also have fencing, you have all kinds of stuff going on all at once. It's just you know, every five seconds, there's a new thing happening in The Princess Bride. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very unashamed to be in love with itself. Like it, it doesn't, you know, if it was, if Mel Brooks made this movie, it would be broader comedy. We wouldn't get the moments of like depth and love and wonder that are in it. It would just be joke, 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 joke. But Rob Reiner is such a, a, a softy, like, and you really get the sense that like he he made this movie with all his favorite people and he loves it to death. And it comes through so clearly in the film. Yeah, I know it really does. And what a run. I mean, basically if you pull the sure thing out of there for Rob Mm -hmm. Reiner, starting with uh, this is spinal tap. And again, we're excluding the sure thing, but then you go right into stand by me, princess bride, when Harry met Sally misery and a few good men. I mean, that is, just running the gamut of genre right there and uh, showing you just his emerging talents as a filmmaker. Remember yeah. when directors could do that? When they yes. could just be like, now I'm going to do yeah. a few good men after the prince. You know, like that, that, would, that was a nice time. That would have been a good time to be coming up. Yeah. You would basically be typecast as, Oh, you're the one Harry met Sally guy. So we're going to give you romantic comedies. And then he went right to misery. It's just sharp left-hand turn. That was basically the career of Rob Reiner. He works with actors just extraordinarily well, which makes sense, of course, because he was an actor. 
And I just think that the cast on this one, it looks like everyone is having the time of their life and makes you feel like you are as well. Yeah. And I, I mean, he, William Goldman in the, in the 25th anniversary of the book, he talked a lot about the making of the movie. There was a whole section on that. And then Carrie Ellis wrote a book about it a couple of years ago. And it sounds like everybody was having the time of their life. Oh, good. Like it just sounds like ev- that was a great set and everyone was having fun. Yeah. I can only imagine. I mean, you know, just the inspired comedy or seeing other people that you're working with, like working with Billy Crystal. I don't know how they kept straight faces through all of this. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It would, it would be impossible. Yes. Well, a film that couldn't be more tonally different than the one which had garnered playwright John Patrick Shanley, the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for Moonstruck in 1988. Our next movie is the cult classic romantic fantasy, Joe versus the Volcano, released in 1990 to mixed reviews and some box office success. The film launched one of the genre's great acting partnerships in Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, who would reunite two more times in the decade in the smash rom-com hits Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. An off-the-wall, initially pitch-black comedy about a bored office worker, played by Hanks, who agrees to sacrifice himself for Islanders when he's led to believe he's dying. The film switches gears multiple times right along with Ryan, who plays three different roles. It's a film you've heard briefly discussed in the past by Chad Perman on our Brightwall Dark Room episode, and one that I feel like... I've come to like a little more each time I've seen it. I'm curious to hear more from you on Joe versus the volcano. Yeah, this is this is another this I was an early convert on this one. This was another one my dad brought home and and we talked a lot about and I remember seeing really young and and to me watching it because I, I rewatched it and I hadn't seen it in a few years now. Like what I love about it is there are qualities to it that are almost like a a Greek myth of some kind, you know, the woman with multiple faces and this symbol keeps encountering over again. It has mythic qual. And I mean, he's on an odyssey essentially like to, to see if he can please the gods. Like it's a myth. It's it's almost more than a fantasy. It's a, it's closer in tone to something like clash of the Titans in some ways, but (laughs) But again, like with the Princess Bride, what what kills me in this movie are the the moments of blind sincerity that, you know, you have the the moment on the boat when Meg Ryan is talking to him and says, you know, I want you to know I was mean to you because I'm soul sick and you're going to see that. Yeah, what a beautiful, I know this time through that was such a beautiful, vulnerable delivery. And then the moment everybody talks about, which is when Joe sees the moon rise and and you know, thanks, whatever God for his existence yeah. is you can't not be vulnerable as a viewer to those moments. I mean, mm-hmm. if you've already checked out of the movie, I, I guess you could, but like it, it begs of you a, a, an acceptance of sincerity that we normally treat as corny. Um, and, and I think that's a really hard thing for a filmmaker to do because they know people are predisposed to be cynical about, about sincerity in movies. Um, so that, I mean, the movie, I think the movie has its flaws. Definitely uh, its cultural depictions are outdated, Yeah, <laughs> um, but, but I, I don't know. It, it really, 
it has some magic to it that that works really beautifully. Yeah, I think you're so onto something, especially because it opens and it seems like such a dark satire of the drudgery of office life. It makes you uh, think of uh, like office space when you're rewatching it. It has this great opening where they're like going almost to prison, essentially, or yeah. to his factory job. And anyone who's worked in a cubicle or a job that you hate, you know, basically you will you just you get chills watching this opening sequence and so it is very dark and very cynical initially but then there are these moments of real beauty where you see as you were saying the vulnerability beneath there like when he finds out or thinks that he is dying and he decides to ask out this woman that he's probably had a crush on in the office and ignored or just like pushed it deep down um, is really beautiful. And it also brings up issues of like post-trauma because mm-hmm. he had been a fireman and he'd kind of just moved on through the stress of life. And, you know, as the film continues, you're not really sure what you're watching. I think the first time I watched it, it just didn't play by any rules that I had seen before. So I was completely baffled, especially because I was so young when I was watching this and it was just really, really strange. But then every time, especially the older I get, like you were pointing out with the soul sick speech and knowing Shanley's writing, you know, my goodness, and just how, um, in touch with emotion and how he never really shies away from that. Like even when it gets operatic or it gets a little like (laughs) embarrassing would be the word in, in somebody else's hands, but in his hands, it's like, he's going to put himself his heart on his sleeve, you know, for better or worse, like wild mountain time. It's a little, uh, yeah. Yeah. He can go, he can go over the edge. He can go over the edge for sure. But I think this movie, it needs like the sweet, the sour and the salty, and it just puts it all together. And yeah, I've liked it more with each viewing. And this time I have to say, I'm really enjoying it. I read something interesting. I guess Roger Ebert gave it like three and a half out of four initially. And then years later, he played it uh, at his Ebert Fest in Chicago and watching it again with the crowd, he had to ask himself, like, what was wrong with him? Why didn't he give it four stars? So I think this is a film that grows on everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is more appreciated now, I I think, than it it was when it came out. And, you know, it got overshadowed by the later Meg Ryan uh, and and Tom Hanks pairings a little bit because those were so popular and so mainstream. Um, and this is just, this one is for weirdos and I love <laughs> about it. Yeah. Yeah. And how good is Meg Ryan? I mean, this was kind of like an early, I mean, yeah. following like Top Gun, which she had like a scene stealing supporting role in there, but you know, she's just marvelous playing three completely different women. I love your allusions to Greek mythology because yeah, you do get that in this and she's really, really good. She's just great. Yeah. She's, she's one. I mean, yeah, you, you fall in love with her Mm -hmm. so many times in that movie. It's uh, it's a great performance. I love how everything pays off. Like nothing is wasted Um, early on with uh, him going shopping and just down to those steamer trunks that he buys, you know, and then later when they're 
put together to like form a boat I, and the, the radio and the, these things that he purchased early on pay off later. I think that's really clever. It's sort of establishing as you're a screenwriter and someone who specializes in, in this, like there is no uh, wasted scene early on. It, it's all going to come back. Yeah, it, it 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 does. It wraps itself up really. I mean, Shanley is great ab- about that. He's really good at constructing a, a solid narrative. But like all of the questions that he raises in this, like what does he shop for? What does he take with him on this journey to go die? Yeah. And like there, there is the, the film operates to me on a philosophical level that I don't fully comprehend. But there's so much stuff in there about how we see ourselves as a person and the things we think are important. And with him, like, even though he's buying like a ridiculous violin case with champagne in it, that turns <laughs> out to be critical to his survival. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I marvel at the the mythic themes going on in that, in that movie. I can't believe that movie got made or that kind of movie used to get made. Like people gave millions of dollars. Yes. To something that's structured like nothing, looks like nothing, you know, is wildly all over the place in tone. And yeah. it's just astonishing uh, yeah. that it's it ban- exists. It is. It's bananas. And the other thing that's really cool about it, and again, that's Shanley too, being a playwright, is every character, even if they have like one scene, is interesting. Mm-hmm. Like they are completely unique individuals. We aren't getting like a, you know, an index card walking around when you're putting them up on the wall as you're trying to figure out your script and like, well, we need a character to say this. No, it's like everybody has a life, a backstory, the people he works with, uh, the limo driver, just anyone he encounters. Yes, there are some cringy stuff and, you know, with the cultural um appropriations and some of that maybe isn't the greatest but as far as the people that he regularly interacts with or just meets along the way they're all unique and memorable and three-dimensional yeah a really good casting there too like they cast very interesting looking people like the guy that sells him the suitcase has like four lines and you're like this guy is in his entirely own movie here that's all about the suitcase guy and it's great yes it is so you remember seeing this because it sounds like your dad was a big fan of fantasy. Did you, were you guys on board right away with it? Yeah, we, he loved it. He, it, it's still one of his favorite movies. Yeah. My dad, you know, has no formal film education or anything. He was a software engineer, um, uh-huh. but he would just go to the, the little video rental store pre-blockbuster every week and bring home whatever looked interesting. So I have a very unusual early film education because it was like, oh, I got this French movie that looks good. And I got this new kids movie that came out. I'm like that, you know, I just got to marinate in all the strange movies that, you know, he hadn't even seen trailers for them. It's just like, oh, the back of this looked interesting. Or maybe he'd read a Roger Ebert review because those were syndicated in our local paper. But like, um, so yeah, I, I have a very <laughs> limited in many ways, but very eclectic film, early film education from him. And I'm so grateful for it. I think that's so valuable because, you know, people that just pay attention to the blockbusters or, or even just the critically acclaimed films, and then they aren't just going off of instinct of, well, I, am I interested in this or am I being told I should be? 
I think that's really cool because then you are a little bit more open and adventurous as a viewer. And I love that from an early age, that was you. Yeah, very much. And he's very much a, he's a, he's a bit of a philosopher. So we would need to have long conversations about what the movie meant afterwards. So yeah, I I was going to film school when I was eight. (laughs) Yes. Uh, My parents were the same way. I mean, not the philosophy. Well, my mom was, she wanted to talk about everything, but they just would expose me to whatever um, movie that fascinated them. They wanted to make sure that I wasn't just um, only familiar with what was happening in our neighborhood. They wanted mm-hmm. me to get a world view, essentially, or see houses and people that look different from me. And so I do really, I respect that about you. And I think that's really cool that um, your tastes are reflected in your early upbringing and these movies that you chose that are really wonderful. Yeah. Aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky to have parents that were able and and willing to do that for us? Yes. That loved art for sure. Well, jumping ahead 30 years to our most recent film on the list, we have director Max Barbacow's Palm Springs from screenwriter Andy Sierra, starring Andy Samberg, Kristen Malati, and J.K. Simmons. The 2020 movie is centered on two strangers who meet at a wedding in Palm Springs and find themselves caught in a Groundhog Day style time loop. A clever play on that earlier Harold Ramis movie with Bill Murray and Annie McDowell, Palm Springs, was a genuinely surprising film blend of the sweet, salty, spicy, and sour, what I was mentioning earlier. It is one that I'm really glad that you chose because I enjoyed it when I first saw it, but I loved it even more now. So what about it first stood out to you? Well, when I saw it the first time, I mean, it was one of the, it was the pandemic movie because it came out in like February of 2020, yeah. I think. And and so everybody watched it while we were adjusting to this new routine of, of the same thing every day. Um, and I really enjoyed it then. But but on rewatch, it's, it's interesting. Of the three movies, this one by far has the most like actual romantic development. Um, the characters yeah, spend a true. lot of time together and and really, uh, you know, get to know each other much, much better than in the other two. But but, you know, I see it as so interesting because I do think it's what this genre of kind of fantasy rom- romance comedies has evolved to, which is that you need a very cheap location. You need a cheap gimmick like they just have a cave that lights up. That's that's all they have. And that amazing scene with the dinosaurs. That's a good point. Yeah. Like this is how you can still make that kind of movie today, like very tightly budgeted, much more character focused. Um, And uh, in some ways, it's great because it's a it's a really charming movie. And I, I love it. But but you do wish like what if they had had double that budget. Like what if they could have gotten really the crazy? Spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, it's sad that like the big non-action fantasy movies have mm-hmm. almost entirely d- died out. You know, you can yeah. I would say Stardust Stardust was kind of the the last gasp of Oh the, yeah, the Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the last like non cuz Lord of the Rings is amazing, although it was 20 years ago and but it's action based, it's about men and war yeah. and stuff. Um but like we don't go to fantasy realms for other subjects and that sucks. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's so true. Tough. So yeah. I, it's it's interesting. This, this is um 
it, it's great that this movie exists uh, and, and it's a really fun play on the Groundhog Day themes, but it is also showing a space that used to exist for magical realism movies that is dying out. And I don't like it because I want lots of those movies. Yeah, let's bring them back. One thing I really responded to about this film is the complexity of the characters, especially our leading lady. You know, she's one of those striving, messy women that you usually don't get, especially in the genre. They're they're usually pretty perfect you sure. know, um, yeah, both the man and the woman, they're a little bit generic. Usually we're getting, I mean, when I should say they don't really make romantic comedies nearly as much as they used to, but this was really refreshing. I thought, you know, we really see this woman struggle and change. And I love that they bring out the best and the worst in each other. I thought their chemistry was amazing. Yeah, I really was surprised and delighted by Andy Samberg. I, I wasn't fully sure that he could. I knew he was a funny guy, very charming, but could he play sort of the darkness or the drama underneath? I thought he was really good. And she's just incredible. Yeah, I, I definitely ascribe to the, the theory that comedic actors are are always the ones you really want to cast in dramatic roles because yeah. they, they have range and they understand, um, you know, not just in the in the practice of being good at playing different levels for the laugh, they have to get a really in-depth understanding of character psychology mm-hmm. um, more than I think you need when you're doing you know, a crying scene or, or something like that. I, I think they True. work, they work more angles. Uh, so he was great. Yeah. They, they have a ton of chemistry um, and, you know, are both broken people the, you, you look at Groundhog Day and Bill Murray is a broken person. Annie McDowell is not. No, she's flawless. Yeah. She, she doesn't need to change. She's always nope. perfect. And she's the goal of the movie yes. to, to get her to redeem him in a way. And, and in this one, it's just like, it's just two people figuring a relationship out in a timeless space that they're trapped yeah. in. And that that's such a cool way to look at it. It really is. And one other thing I love about it, usually in romances, um, the goal is to get the other person. But in this, in some respects, it's to figure yourself out along the way. Kind of that old thing of, you know, you're not really ready for somebody else until you figure out what you want in life and who you are as a person. And that's exactly what these characters need to do, figure out what's important to them individually. And you know, are they compatible and what can they bring each other, especially uh, her character? I love that. I mean, it's spoilery, but she's the one that tries to figure out an intellectual, you know, way out of their situation, but also own up to some of the choices that she's made throughout. I think it's really an interesting film. Yeah. And it it expands on such a real like I, I love the setting that it's it's all taking place over a wedding weekend because it it takes that thing of like, what if you meet someone who you're not ordinarily going to see and you're only going to be there, you know, oh, for true. two hours or whatever. Point. And what if instead you spent the rest of you know eternity with them and got to explore that fully? That's such a fun like way into a story. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. there's the dinosaur scene. 
which I love more than anything in the world. And I still can't, I can't like explain it. I, I like it, 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 it I'm true. I have grappled with like, what is the metaphor? What are the filmmakers trying to say about this? Cause it's my favorite thing in the movie and I'm too stupid <laughs> to figure out what they were doing with that scene, but I love it. Oh, it's crazy. The other thing I love is JK Simmons. Mm-hmm. How great is he? I mean, you know, he's one of those actors you can plug into any film and he just fits. Like yeah. he, we saw him kind of like a renaissance of him in some of these Apatow uh, style f- films with uh, Will Ferrell. We've also seen him in ensemble films and no matter what the genre is, he's kind of reminding me of like a new Jeff Bridges, essentially. Where yeah, you that's can a just, really good comparison. Where you can just put him in something. And I mean, he kills me in this movie. Yes. It's well, and it, I mean, because he's such a chameleon, he does so well at playing like this guy that when you first meet him is hunting Andy Samberg yes. and, and killing him in brutal ways. And and then you meet him later in the movie and he's at home with his kids and like I the know. suburban dad. And it's it that scene is so great. The scene where he talks about like, you know, there there are worse things than to be stuck in a day like this forever. Yeah, it's um, very touching. Yeah. Although at the end, it still seems like he is also going to try to get out of the, the loop That's as true. well. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice. It's a story. It doesn't wallop you over the head with its, you know, a clear concept of what it thinks is right and wrong. Like mm-hmm. the, the movie is, is much more um, forgiving of its characters than it could be. Like it's not trying to make an ethical point about when you deserve. To yeah. Time oh, in. that's good. Yeah. Another one I love in the movie is, I mean, she has a very small role, but Meredith Hagner, whenever she is in something, I feel like she just steals the scenes. She plays Sandberg's girlfriend, who is unfaithful. I think she's hilarious. She's in Search Party. I've seen her in just little movies over the years. She was even in some like Hallmark films and no matter, or Lifetime movies, no matter how lame they were, she just has like the energy to, you know, power a country essentially. Yeah. And she's, she's great. really funny. Yeah. yeah. In, in this one. And I mean, just even the choices she's making with her accent to have that super yes. like Valley girl thing. It's amazing. She reminds me of um, her performance reminds me of Anna Ferris in lost in translation a little bit. In the, That's a good comparison. She's so good at him bodying like an absolute ditz it's amazing yeah no she's great it's just a really fun movie I was so thrilled to watch it again a little bit closer this time because I remember liking it you pointed out that it was a good early pandemic movie because during the pandemic the last thing you really wanted to watch was a movie that was grappling like with the realities of the pandemic. So this was a safe way to kind of deal with that, you know, like it was, it was a little, it was a little Easter candy that we got right at the beginning of the pandemic. It's very different watching it now. Uh, I I had a very depressing feeling after watching it, rewatching it for this, just because I was like, I don't Remember know, maybe that? a time loop would be better. Like <laughs> at least things couldn't get worse. Uh, yeah, I know. I think this is a safer way to sort of question what we've been going through is uh, to take a look at these because I was going to ask you that. 
I think it was on Twitter, you had pointed out that a lot of the scripts you were reading were kind of set in 2019, basically. This is really bothering me. And I get yelled at every time I bring it up on Twitter. There's no, I have no problem with writing a period movie. If you want to set something in 2010, just, you know, have a reason to set it in 2010. But like, I feel like the future has stopped when I am reading these scripts because people, it's not that people don't want to write about the pandemic. And and I understand, like, I don't want to read a whole bunch of pandemic movies about Mm -hmm. it, you know, but they can't envision still a normal operating world. Um, and they don't want to grapple with even small things. Like maybe people are wearing masks. Maybe there's hand sanitizer dispensers yeah. you know, around the scene, whatever, like small stuff like that. People are just like, no, it, it is 2019 forever. And I find that so psychologically concerning <laughs> that it to me is. says so much yeah. about uh, where, where, where we are. are. Yeah. And, and how, how terrified we are of the future or the present. Yeah. If we can't adapt to the fact that it's here to stay, essentially, that that is not a good thing. So that's interesting. Yeah. So screenwriters, what we're saying is have a setting and don't be afraid of setting things now, even if you have to put some hand sanitizer or a mask or a couple lines of dialogue in there. Life is moving on and we need to start thinking about that. And yeah. And also don't be afraid of fantasy rom-coms. I mean, we're just throwing out pearls, Jessica. That's what we're doing. I mean, they'll never get made. I will tell you that right now, but please write them because I, I don't know. I I think it's such a valuable genre. And I honestly, you know, there's, there's genres I don't particularly have an attachment to, but I think more people love this kind of movie than maybe studios think. Yeah. Um, Like, I wish there were like, Pixar movies that were aimed at a, at adult audiences. Like you could make mm-hmm. a Pixar princess bride, not a remake, but like that sort of thing. And I guarantee you, you know, if we can stomach five superhero movies a year, all of which yeah. I see and enjoy, like, <laughs> can we have one or two princess brides? Can we have a couple of magic realism, big swings? There's it. Yes. I don't think it would break any of the big studios to put money into these but yeah creativity is our friend for sure but I know these were the three that we did up to focus on today but there's so many different directions that we could have gone in for the episode I wanted to ask if there are other titles you'd like to recommend listeners who dig the subgenre and would like to see more films from it even if they are rom-coms you were pointing out Uh, magical realism titles, just anything that you think might appeal to fans who like elements of these? Um, Let me think. I I mean, there's there's the obvious ones like Groundhog Day and and Stardust and and things like that. One that comes immediately to mind is The Secret of Ron Inish. Oh, I loved that film. Irish film um, that is, you know, it's a, it's a real world set film, but there are Selkies and there's Irish myth and it's, that's a, that's a gorgeous film. Shoot. Now I have gone totally blank oh, you're on, fine. on other romantic fantasies or other like just yeah I mean because like, I'm still I'm a big like labyrinth legend old school Jim Hensony yeah uh, fantasy movie buff I'm trying so. to think of magical realism films yeah, like water for Moonstruck. chocolate like water for chocolate is a great one it's a good yeah. one 
Antonia's line has a couple little flourishes. But yeah, it seemed to be kind of like the 80s and 90s. We were a little more unafraid to. Chocolat is another great one. Oh, uh, Chocolat. That is a Johnny good down. one. That's, yeah, yeah, that's got a lovely little tinge of, of magic realism. There's, there's also, I don't know. Robert Redford made a movie in the 80s that I have not seen in many years. So I don't know if it's culturally acceptable at this point, but he made a movie called The Milagro Beanfield War about a town in New Mexico that's going to be destroyed by white corporatists trying to put in like a resort or something uh-huh. like that. And it has little hints of magical power. There's a saint that speaks to this old guy all the time. There's a pig that ends up in many bizarre scenarios. Like it's it's a really, I have to revisit that one because it's, you know, it's it's Redford. So it should I mean, be, I think it's yeah. really hurt and... I can't. Wow. I haven't Mel- seen Melanie that Griffith, since I think? childhood, basically. Yeah. So yeah, I think we need to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 my weirdest off off the charts one. But I loved that movie as a kid. I, I have to revisit it as an adult. Yeah. Oh, that would be a good one. Next time. No, I'm just kidding. next time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no. Well, this was so much fun, Jessica. I want to thank you for doing this. It's always such a pleasure to talk movies with you. Are there any films that you've been just watching lately that you want to recommend before? Uh, we... I have just been watching West Side Story on repeat. Since okay. It- came out so if it, I and I cannot I am in I'm my life is about to be ruined with the Oscars because I think that movie should win every <laughs> award including several it's not nominated for uh, and my heart's going to get broken I think seven times but I think that's oh. the best movie to come out in about three years I would love there to be a resurgence of musicals I mean we did have a handful of them last yeah. year but Boy, would that be something if we got big musicals again. Yeah. And musicals yes. that are shot like musicals are supposed to be shot. Yes. I think both West Side Story and Tick, Tick, Boom did great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even In the Heights had some just, you know, staggering shots from above. Like, we mm-hmm. need that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, bring back musicals. Bring back whimsical, insane genres, please. Yes, more than just uh, the films that we're getting the existing IPs of all the time. Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) For God's sake, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be back. Anytime. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. 
Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.